Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. My name is Dwayne Osterland, and we are on to another episode. My guest today is Dr. Paula Hall. Dr. Paula Hall is an accredited sexual and relationship psychotherapist who specializes in helping people affected by sex addiction and porn addiction. Since her work in the field began over 15 years ago, she has become increasingly passionate about developing national and international services to meet the ever-growing problem. Furthermore, she campaigns for better education and social responsibility to protect others from falling into the sex addiction trap. She believes that overcoming sex addiction requires compassion, commitment, and courage, and she adopts these principles personally in her therapeutic approach. And today we're going to talk about her experience in this field as a psychotherapist, and we're going to talk about her pivotal recovery course and what led her to forming this type of course and what that means and why podcasts like The Addicted Mind can be a form of therapy. What's really great about her course is that all the proceeds of her course go to her nonprofit that support research in this area of addiction. So that's very exciting. So I think this is a great episode. And if you think The Addicted Mind is great, please rate and review us in iTunes that really does help. It really helps the podcast get found. I really appreciate it. I read them. They mean a lot to me. So thank you for all the people out there are taking the time to do that. And you can also find us on Instagram at Addicted Mind Podcast. And don't forget, click the subscribe button so you can get all the latest episodes in your podcast feed. All right, everyone, stay tuned for this episode. All right, everyone, welcome to the Addicted Mind. My guest today is Paula Hall, and we're going to talk about sex and porn addiction and treatment and how to get treatment and what that looks like. So 
Paula, why don't we just jump in? You introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about you and and why this is an important area of work for you. Yeah. Hi. So, yeah, I'm Dr. Paula Hall, based in the UK, as you may be able to tell from the accent. And I started in therapy about, well, just gosh, it was 30 years ago now. And I started initially in the um, statutory sector in drug and alcohol work and then trained as a couple therapist and then I trained as a sex therapist. And basically my journey into sex addiction was working with um, a couple of clients that I can remember so clearly now really struggling with these compulsive behaviours before we had any language for it. This is pre-internet. Porn was not an issue back then. Um, yeah. They didn't really have any language for, for what yeah, they yeah. what was happening for them. And we explored their family of origin stuff. We did all sorts of different things, but frankly, nothing worked. And then I went to a conference and someone started talking about this thing called sex addiction. And it was just like penny drop moment. Oh my goodness, this is this is what I've been dealing with. And that must have been about I was at least 15, 18 years ago and then started specializing yeah. it. And I think the, for me, there is some, the, the thing that really hooked me into this field is working with men in part, if I'm honest. I've generally always been in work environments that have been about men. I think men often don't have a voice. I think <laughs> women can often be the ones who think we're the ones that do all the intuition, do all the emotion, do all this, that, and the other, and then we wonder why so many men end up, end up with addictive problems because we kind of tell them they can't do it. Stuff. Yep. And so I think it was in part it was the fact that I would I found myself mostly working with men and that kind of appeals to me, but also being completely misunderstood and sex addiction and porn addiction is so misunderstood by professionals as i'm sure you're aware as well as by society and that touches a lot of my personal stuff a lot of my childhood stuff around not really being understood and yeah i think that's why i got into this or or having a voice for this and i think yeah i think you're so right in this field especially back then yeah there were no there was no language and you know there is still debate on the language. You know, some people want to call it sex addiction. Some people want to call it compulsive sexual behavior, out of control sexual behavior, however they call it. I think most everybody agrees that this is an issue for people that was, I guess, you know, kind of hidden because of all the shame around sexuality and we didn't talk about it. And and you're right. These, I had a very much similar experience. These people come in and it's like, this is a, this is a, this is a real issue for them. This is, this is something big. And it's like, it's not just about just stopping, yeah. right? Yeah, absolutely. And it's not with any addiction. You've got to look at obviously what's going on underneath, what the drivers are. And I think for so many people, and I, I don't think this happens so much in the chemical addiction field, which is like, you know, I was trained in that field as well as being a, a, a sex therapist. You don't get many others where they question, is this really a problem or not? Or is this a character default? In this, is you know, maybe, maybe I just don't love my partner. Maybe this is just the person I am. Maybe this is just the way I've been designed. And just really questioning their whole identity because it does become about their relationship with themselves yeah. as well as their relationship. Because I think our sexuality is such a essential part of our humanity, of who we are. When you're struggling with that aspect of your identity, I think you really start questioning your own identity, not just your your behavior. 
Yeah, I, I I think that's so important to be able to make a point about because that that goes into that bigger picture where it's not just about this behavior. There's all these other issues going on, and for like a lot of people, when they go to traditional talk therapy, it doesn't necessarily really solve the problem. Like you were saying earlier, you know, you tried all these things and and in a traditional sense, and it's like this didn't work. Yeah. It's like they're still they're still stuck here in this cycle. Yeah, and I think that I mean, obviously, you know, talk therapy does does work for many, but I think it's it's giving it time to to kind of process. And I think there's it's, it's also about the language. And and again, what I've really noticed working primarily with men, there's I think there's an awful lot of traditional therapy that actually isn't that accessible for an awful lot of a lot of guys, a lot of blokes, a lot of dudes, a lot of lads. You know that that haven't come from a, a certain educational class background where they talk about feelings and that kind of stuff, or are used to that that internal dialogue right. that you need to learn to develop in order to make use of therapy. So um, I think we have to adapt some of the tools that we use and the, the approaches that we have. I'm a huge fan of group work, so I do think, and there's something incredibly powerful about getting a group of men together and them learning from each other. I think that's a really important part of the journey as well. But it, it is about combining the the very, very practical, pragmatic behavioral change techniques, the relapse prevention, the recognizing triggers, with also exploring what's going on underneath, what's what's driving the behavior. Can you talk a little bit about those two things? Because I think that can be really confusing in the sense of, you know, if I just understand my history, then then I'll just stop my behavior or maybe I'll understand why I do it and then I'll just stop. And why that doesn't always work, you know, we can we can know our history and then we still go out and do the things that aren't good for us, even though we know why we're doing it. And, and so talk about that with the combination of this behavioral Part. I think that, and, and we are learning so much more about this because of the the work that's happening in neuroscience, which is great. And um, the other thing, I, I am really passionate about the psychoeducational piece. And I talk a lot about how many people don't overcome this problem because they don't understand this problem. And if you're trying to, you know, hammer a nail in with a saw, it ain't going to work. And actually, it's it's you're using the wrong right. tool because you don't understand what the problem is. Therefore, the psychoeducational work on understanding the problem is is really critical. And we know that there are biological components, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure you're aware of this. All the neuroscience about the way that addiction changes the brain, changes the neural pathways in the brain, and then of course there are the psychological components. There are the the, the social components as well. So I come very much from a biopsychosocial perspective and so once something's got set up biologically that is just what we do so we could have a you know huge conversation about yeah why is it that you play the piano and what is it that got you into that or what are your driving forces but you still play the piano it's not actually going to change any of that you're still very good at playing the piano instead of you open the keypad up you're you're in position you're there you know your fingers are in position in your legs you know how to do it and that's because of the neural pathway change. So, and again, I think if you don't combine both of these bits, you can sit in therapy for years and not change anything behaviorally. But conversely, you could go purely on a behavioral change course, 
But because you haven't changed any of the unconscious drivers, it's only a matter of time before you trip up again because the old stuff comes in. But I think also the challenge for many people is if you think about addiction as being an anesthetic, it's a way of numbing out difficult emotions quite often. Until the anesthetic's worn off, many people aren't aware what those emotions are. So again, that's where talking therapy, I think, sometimes has historically got it wrong because it's let's talk about your feelings as well. I haven't got any. I don't have any. I'm, I'm fine. I'm still, the reason you're fine is because you've been acting out for yeah. the last 30 years. You're going to have to. It's often, I think there's some research into this, it's about 12, 16 weeks into sobriety. And I use that word deliberately so I don't think you're in recovery and you're just sober. Frankly, the shit hits the fan and all that old stuff starts coming back. Yeah, and that's when the relapse happens. But there's yeah, no that point neurobiology, it the history, the trauma, exactly all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So all that stuff comes back. So you you have to be able to to do that in both ways. I want to go back to your analogy a little bit about playing the piano, and you know, of course, I play the piano, and that's a very positive behavior that you know. And I I would like to see how to make the comparison to. And, and flesh that analogy out a little bit more about how that's different when it's a sex addiction or, or porn addiction, when you're using that compulsively and how like you're playing the piano there, but that's a positive thing, but you're doing this too in the same, the neural pathways are similar, I guess. Yeah. And now I'm slightly regretting not choosing the metaphor. I don't play the piano, but never mind. So if there's anybody out there who's uh, listening to this, who's a pianist, I apologize now <laughs> if I'm being incorrect in my metaphor, I should have thought of something else. But I think it's about that repetitive function. Obviously we get, we get good at playing the piano or what other people do by practicing. And that strengthens the neural pathways so that it becomes almost automatic. So if I'm working with somebody where it's it's porn addiction, you know, initially it would have taken a little bit of effort to think about seeking porn out and when they're going to seek it. And then at first it might feel a little bit awkward and it takes a while to kind of chill out and get into the zone and then they, they might enjoy it. Well, they practice, and really addiction is just people who practice a lot from a neuro- neurological perspective. So once you practice that a lot, actually you're opening the lid of your laptop or your laptop or you're opening a page on you know the browser on your your phone on your tablet whatever without even thinking about it it's so automatic because what started as something that took some yeah. cognitive effort has now become a habit i'm often asked what is the difference between a habit and an addiction and I think the answer is dopamine, is that actually, precisely as you say, whilst you might get a real hit from playing the piano, it's not going to be quite the same hit of dopamine that you get from sex or porn, because you you obviously you get that, that real mega hit because yeah. it's part of this wiring to uh, you know, survival. So it, it's really about the way that I was using the metaphor and the way in which habits develop and you can start doing things yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, before I knew it, I was actually standing outside a massage parlor. And and I can't even really remember doing the Googling, doing this, that, and the other, or when I planned it. Often when we talk to people about relapse, you might say, so when, you know, when did you start thinking of often it was just I, I was just on, I can't really remember. I was on the phone, I was just, it was why did you act out? Because it was Thursday. Trying to find some deep meaningful yeah, exactly it's what i do on thursdays and it's because it's become so habitual 
And I think what you were saying earlier, what's so important about that is that, like you said, it takes time away from these behaviors to be able to start to see the impact. Like, oh, now I see why I did that on Thursday. It wasn't because it was Thursday. It was because now that I'm kind of thawing out and in my sobriety, I start to see these emotions and I, and then I can start to put those together and start to go, Oh, I I do that when I'm feeling stressed or anxious or when I have a traumatic memory or, but you, you can't tell that until you have some time away. So people get, I think really it's easy to miss. It's I just do it because I just do it. Like you said, I just do it because it's there, but it's not really that you have to have some space. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's, I don't think all acting out is triggered by emotion. I mean, having worked with chemical addiction as well, if it, you don't have to feel down every time you light, light a spliff. It's just, yeah, it just becomes, it's, it's just what I do. It becomes part of your identity. It becomes what you do. So one of the things I think that distinguishes me yeah. from some other people that work, Good point. work in this field is I don't label my clients as addicts. I really hate the term addict. You're an addict. You have an addiction. I don't like suffering from an addiction either because that's like all two victim stance. But you're not an addict. You're someone who has an addiction. I understand from the 12-step perspective, it's really important to, to, to not to break denial, to acknowledge what's going on. But I think if you start absorbing addiction as part of your identity, I think that can be unhelpful personally. So often you, you'll know you'll know people who've worked with yeah. me or followed my program because they'll say, "Hi, my name's Dwayne, and I have sex addiction or porn addiction, rather than I am a sex addict." So something about separating it from your identity, I think, is really important. Yeah, I, I I agree with you too in in the whole addiction field on that because uh, you know when you put that in into your identity, it almost locks you into that role exactly. and. That's, you know, we're more than our role. We are bigger than our role that we put ourselves in. And the self is bigger than that. And being able to take on that part of the journey. And I I guess that part of the spiritual journey in a way, you know, who are we, ourself and all that. And actually going back to the the, the piano metaphor, I guess, because you're saying, well, if very rightly, it's a very positive thing. And actually, if you are learning to play the piano, often you're someone who's learning to play the piano, and then you're someone who plays the piano. If you keep practicing enough, you become a pianist. And you're proud of the fact that part of your identity is being a pianist, because it's a, it's, it's a positive thing. You want that. And we know in terms of positive habit change, you know, the people who become runners exercise more than the people who go running. You know, when it actually is absorbed positively in your identity, it's a good thing. So I think we have to be conscious of doing the reverse of that for people getting into recovery. So they're not, they, they, they are in recovery from addiction, not, yeah, recovered addict. And over time, that, that like you said, over time, they can change that, I, they, that identity or how they see themselves in this, in this moment of, of time, because there's so much shame with, sex addiction and porn addiction and and that becomes part of their identity too and when they're in recovery they can change that they can start to be different and and like you said over time now they become a person that feels like they have integrity a person that tries to live honestly uh, you know that takes care of themselves take care of the people they love 
instead of, you know, having the addiction kind of run it all. Yeah, absolutely. And when you're working with people, tell me a little bit about how you start this journey with them. You know, they come into your office or they come into your program. What's the first thing you're going to tell them? And and how do you start to move them through that process? I mean, so I, um, I'm a traditional psychotherapist in terms of seeing people face-to-face or on Zoom a lot now since COVID. And we run uh, group works at the Laurel Centre as well. So the Laurel Centre is a big um, sex addiction practice in the UK. It's 25 therapists and, you know, it's, it's lots of group work and lots of partner work as well. So in that kind of traditional setting, of course, first and foremost, it's listening. It's really hearing the story of the client and where they're at and what's going on for them. And I think also finding out what's most urgent and actually, so on our client, I, I saw for the first time yesterday, what's actually most urgent is that I don't act out on my next business trip. For some, for some it actually is right. how I support my partner. For some, it is an, another client I've got is very, very sure he'll never, ever, ever, ever act out again, ever, ever, ever. I've heard that so many times. And actually, the most important thing is about understanding what's going on underneath. And I think it's really important to to hear that and acknowledge that, but then also to give kind of the framework of um, of, of how of how to work. And I suppose a question that uh, two questions I asked very early on in therapy: one is is why now? Why, why didn't you come two weeks ago? Why didn't you put this off until after Christmas? Why now? What's actually going on for you now? <laughs> the other one I've just instantly forgotten. That's clever. But yeah, another question is, you know, how will you how will you know when you've done enough therapy? How will you know when you are cured in recovery, whatever language that they're they're using? So that they and to get them beginning to think about how they might feel when this is not just how they'll behave. Well, I won't act out. Well, that's the that's the obvious one. But what else? How will you know that you really yeah. feel confident in your recovery? So again, it's about finding out what's what's kind of important important for them. It's like both sides of it, right? Like what you know, what got you here, and what do you want your life to to be like? And you know, it's like each side of that, you know, pushing them and their different motivations about each of those pieces, right? One is I got to get away from something, and one is I'm going towards it. And this is what I want to achieve. And I, 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 it's like, and then, you know, encouraging him to do that and to take that, that work on. And we, we were talking earlier before we started recording about how, how, you know, difficult it is to get this work, to be able to get access to this work. Because, you know, when you start to do that, move away from this and move towards this, it's a, it is a long road. It's not yeah. easy in my experience, it's a lot of work and that work takes time. It takes access to the resources that you need to do that work. And so I want to transition a little bit to what you're doing because you, yeah. you have the pivotal recovery course and you, you made that so people could have access in a way that's easier to get to and get some of this material yeah. And is also therapy, and and that can be expensive. It, it it can cost a lot of money to get that kind of treatment. So, absolutely, let's, let's I mean, jump I, in there and yeah, talk about that. I mean, I that. think the the work we do at the Laurel Centre is is brilliant. Obviously, I think it's great, and we do have bursary schemes, and we do have take on some low cost clients. 
But, you know, therapists that are working for me, me, myself, we've got mortgages to pay, you know, kids to raise, so on and and so forth. Got to pay the bills. Absolutely. But for many years, I've wanted to try and find a way of actually providing something low cost. And I have written some books. I mean, that's one way of doing it. But really having something that was, was much more accessible. So initially, when I started thinking about how to do pivotal recovery, I was thinking it might be a a video course. It might be that, but of course, people don't watch videos anymore. It's much more about podcasts, which is why it's so important for me to to be on this platform to talk about it. So pivotal recovery, um, it it took a long long time, took about 18 months to put together, is actually 60 podcasts, so six zero, 15 to 20-minute podcasts. Wow. And an accompanying workbook so basically the idea is you listen to the podcast and then you think about how that applies to your individual situation and circumstances and you make some notes in your workbook on some podcasts so the podcast where we're talking about understanding triggers and recognizing where triggers come from in the workbook there's also going to be a a worksheet so there are some very practical pragmatic exercises And some of them might be in the workbook might be more, okay, so let's think of these four or five core emotions. Now, here's some space to think about times in your childhood when you experienced that. Who were you with? Who showed you most love? Or where did you learn anger? And where, where who were the people you didn't experience it from, for example? So the workbook is not just a place for reflections, but it's also a place where there are some very specific kind of exercises as well and the whole the 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 60 sessions are guiding you through the choice recovery model which is something that i write wrote about in the book that came out gosh years ago about eight years ago now and so so that is it starts off with very the psychoeducational stuff what is sex addiction and talking about the biological psychological the relational and sociocultural aspects of it but then moves into the C of choice is about looking at your own core beliefs. And again, in my experience, many people have previously failed in recovery because of a faulty core belief that hasn't been addressed. I'll never succeed. A, a, a client I was speaking to just before coming, coming on air, talking to you, actually, was saying, he says, well, yeah, but people don't really change, do they? Oh. Now, that is really going to trip him mm. up further down the line. People don't really change. Yeah. Because so, we're looking at change. So where did you learn that belief? Where do, if, you don't, if you don't really un- identify your core belief, they're, they're going to trip you up later. I'm a failure. I, I, I never stick to anything. Shame. I don't deserve anything right. better than this. So I remember another client saying to me, I think maybe the problem is I don't really believe there's a better life than this out there for me. Okay, faulty core belief. That is wow. why you keep relapsing because you yeah. end up going back to that. So they're the the beliefs that sabotage recovery. So that's the the so the choice model and, is an acrostic. And I was going to add to that. Often we're not even aware of these beliefs at all until we start to really talk about them and really think about them. Sometimes these beliefs are so automatic in Absolutely. our thinking we don't even realize their beliefs. We treat them as fact. We treat exactly. them as this is it. There's no alternative. And we don't even contemplate an alternative. It's like, this is yeah. fact. And we don't even know they're a belief, right? To make a choice about. And that, yeah. 
I mean, in and of itself, I mean, that's why you do this work, right? You do this writing, you do this journaling, you talk therapy so that you, yeah, yeah like I, I love that idea where then, you know, with that, you, you have some ability to make a choice about something different. Yeah, something, because, because uh, you can't an alternative. all the time. Yeah, all the time it's so deeply ingrained. Actually, they are that's guiding your choices. So choices, it's an acrostic for the six steps, but it's also the philosophy, the philosophy that I follow. That actually, I think addiction robs people of choices. You start doing things automatically that you don't really yeah. want to do, and actually, this is about getting back into the driving seat of your life again. And you know, pivotal is about t- turning around your life. And so, I think that the there's six sessions all on the first day of changing core beliefs. Um, the H is about have a vision, exactly yeah. what you were saying earlier. It's not just about what you're getting away from. It's what you're driving towards. How is your life going to be without this? What is your vision of the future? And I do think positive motivation is, is so essential. The O is about overcoming the behaviors. And I think that this is a bit where I've really grown as a therapist. I used to think many years ago, all you had to do was stop. I now recognize that's just one step. So the overcoming your behaviors is the nuts and bolts of relapse prevention, identifying your triggers, your cognitive distortions, having relapse prevention strategies, that's the nuts and bolts. And I think so many clients think that's all I need, don't need the rest of it, not at all. The I is about identifying positive sexuality. What does that mean to you? What does it look like? What is a positive sex life for you? We talk about masturbation. We talk about mindful masturbation. We talk about kinks and fetishes. We talk about what role that might play. Is that actually an escalation or is that part of your sexual template? So helping people right, to write yeah. really solidly think about what is positive for them. What does positive sexuality mean for them? And I very deliberately say positive, not healthy. The opposite of healthy is unhealthy. And I don't think that's quite what we mean. It's right. what is actually like going to be life affirming for you. And I think one of the things I say to the clients sometimes when I do group work is my goal is to make your sex life better than it's ever been before. And I think sex addiction yeah. robs people of a fulfilling sex life. So the I is about identifying positive sexuality, C-H-O-I. Um, the next C is about connecting with others whether that's within 12 steps, whether that's within another recovery group, but also with friends. So many people isolate in addiction. So that's, you know, really developing meaningful friendships and actually being able to learn to connect with other people. And then the final E is about um, establishing confident recovery. And you, you must have heard this so many times. Recovery is about what you take up, not what you give up. It's about what you take up. So actually... Yeah. Start learning the piano. Statement. Start learning the piano. Start. What are you going to replace it with? Because otherwise, you've just got a big hole in your life, and nobody wants that. What What, yeah. what do you want to do? Let, let's look at all those different hobbies and pastimes. But it's also about and part of that personal development of actually, if you want long term recovery, I need to work on those anger issues. That's stuff that we were identifying earlier on in the program. I need to work on that. Yeah. And okay. Yeah. I. I really need to develop gratitude. I've got to start doing that and learning optimism and so on and so forth. So that so you can see why it's sixty sessions. And these are all doable. Yeah. Yeah. But the, the the thing that's wonderful about it is these are doable. Like you you do it a small step at a time, you know. And I, I have the saying and I don't know where I got it, but 
it's small hinges swing big doors, right? Yeah. You don't have to make huge, you just have to make consistent changes. And in each of these, I love these domains, in each of these domains that you have by this choice model, and you can do one thing in the in those domains, uh, in each of those domains, and they don't have to be this huge thing. I think people, when they get into recovery, obviously they're in crisis and everything's, you know, often when they get into our offices, it's because of a crisis and everything's a mess and it seems so overwhelming. But recovery is about small, consistent changes over time. And it doesn't have to be, I mean, it is overwhelming, but it's not overwhelming. Just go, keep going forward. I think the other thing I've really embraced, and we're doing a lot of research on this as well, by the way. So we're actually going through a pilot study with uh, partners with the university that we're going through at the moment. But the other thing that um, I say in this is actually it's your choice when you stop acting out. Obviously, if if it includes offending now. Your partner might be saying now, but otherwise, yeah. if you're not, if you're not ready, I, I hate all this counting days, day one, day two, day 47, oh, day one, going back. You give up when you want to, but the vast majority, I think something like 85% of the people that have done the course by day 30, so part one is about stopping, part two is about staying stopped. And by the time they get to day 30, they are ready. Not only do, do they, they want They're to ready. change. They want to change. And I think sometimes people try and make that change when actually they're not quite ready to do it. It's still feeling like they should change. They need to change, but actually they want to change. And, of course, all of this is 90 – I did. I mentioned or I did the um, <laughs> currency conversion before I came on – $91 for the whole lot. So this is um, – Pivotal Recovery is a – it's not a charity. So this is not for profit. We're a not-for-profit organization. The plan is that any profits from this are going to go into research and go into education because we really need to educate people about this problem. So I set it up as a not-for-profit. So $91, you get the course. Oh, you can that do is it amazing. In time. Yeah. That is so amazing. And and I, 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 I like what you say, you know – you know, in working with clients and working in this field as well, yeah, I can see that moment in clients when they take it on and it is a desire to be better. And it's so amazing to watch that. And then it's amazing to watch them when they make that transition to working hard, but actually seeing the positive outcomes, they start to see their life and they're like, and it, and it's just, it's amazing. I mean, that's, I think, probably why we both do this work is yeah. it's it's amazing to see and to be it's a part like, of that it's process. So it's life changing. And I love that you're putting research into this and 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 money into this so that we can get even clearer and help more people, help ourselves. And I just love that. So okay, before we wrap up, I always like to ask one question to my guests. And if someone out there is struggling, they're listening to this podcast and you could tell them one thing, what would you want to know? What would you want them to know you can change you can change i i love it paula thank you so much for coming on where can they get the links or or what is the link so that people know that and they can go to that and and yeah pivotalrecovery.org um it's not an alternative to therapy i'm not anyone listening i'm not suggesting it's an alternative but if you're not sure where to start if you can't afford therapy or you're not sure whether that's right for you start with pivotalrecovery pivotalrecovery.org and then see where that takes you. Awesome. I will put all the links in the show notes. So you can just go to theaddictedmind.com as well. 
and, and get that there. Paula, thank you for coming on, sharing your wisdom, sharing your experience, and just giving that gift to all, all the listeners out there. Thank you. I'm Madeline, and I'm the host of the Happiest Sober Podcast. I got sober in my 20s after a decade of gray area drinking, and the greatest plot twist of all time was realizing that alcohol, the thing that I thought made my life the most happy and fun and exciting, was actually the exact thing preventing me from living my happiest and best life. My mom is 40 years sober, and she joins me on my podcast very often. I like to call her my part-time co-host, and I also bring you solo episodes where I share my top tips, tricks, and mindset shifts in sobriety, and lots of how to's for navigating all the things sober from weddings to parties to holidays to bachelorette parties to trips. I'm also joined by so many guests who come on and share their sober stories and they're all so, so inspiring. I'm here to show you that life doesn't end when you quit drinking. In fact, it's very much the opposite. And no matter what your relationship was with alcohol, life can be the absolute happiest when you're sober. New episodes come out every Tuesday. You can listen to Happiest Sober Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. So I hope that you got a lot out of that interview with Dr. Paula Hall. And as usual, you can find all the links in the show notes at theaddictedmind.com. So check them out there. And if you want to continue the conversation online, join our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook and type in the Addicted Mind podcast and click join. All right, everyone, have a wonderful day. And I'll talk to you on the next episode.